I find the current cultural climate, especially in, you know, liberal circles, so exhausting and so overtly stupid so that I'm lured into having conversations that are are degrading just because I'm having them. Even if I'm winning the argument, I shouldn't be having this conversation. This is a waste of my life. I do start thinking, okay, you know, maybe maybe I should quit. Maybe I should withdraw. It's a little bit like that business of wanting to have the medication in the fridge, right? And it's you don't have to take it, but you it's very comforting to know it's there. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest, novelist Lionel Shriver, is known for taking social topics and placing them inside the frame of fiction. Her 2003 novel, We Need to Talk About Kevin, was told from the perspective of a mother whose son commits a school shooting in the vein of the Columbine attacks. That won the Orange Prize for Fiction and was made into a 2011 film starring Tilda Swinton. Lionel's 13 other novels take on such topics as obesity, the U.S. healthcare system, the national debt, global overpopulation, and homegrown terrorism. Her new novel, Should We Stay or Should We Go, is about suicide, specifically the pros and cons of ending your life on your own terms before nature or modern medicine prolongs it in some painful or otherwise ghastly fashion. Lionel spoke with me about this new book and also about her feelings about her own death. Lionel Shriver, welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm thrilled to be here in 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 some kind of ethereal way. Yeah, you're not really here, but nobody nobody ever is anymore. This entire podcast has been conducted remotely since it started, so it's going to be shocked shocked to the system when I actually sit down with somebody in IRL, as they say. The new novel is called Should We Stay or Should We Go? I'll let you tell us what it's about, but suffice it to say, you do something here you've done in previous works, which is to employ this kind of sliding doors effect, if anyone's familiar with that film. So instead of telling a single straightforward story, you speculate as to what would happen if a character made one choice versus another. So tell us, for starters, about the choice at the center of this novel and the various scenarios you explored. Well, it's about a couple in Britain who work for the National Health Service, and um, her father has suffered from uh, horrifying and degrading dementia for years and finally dies, and when he finally dies, she can't even cry because it's all been run out of her. And of course, as as people in the medical profession, they have seen plenty of geriatric decay in uh, in their practices. It is it is proposed, therefore, uh, that rather than um, go through the same experience as her father and so many of their patients, that they accept that beyond the age of about eighty, it's all downhill. And so the best way to do it is to organize cleanly um, to leave this earth on um, the wife's 80th birthday, after which they both would have crossed that threshold. But you see, the book just immediately goes to the point where they're almost 80. And naturally, when you make such a vow, you think that date is never going to arrive. Um, and as you observed, it's a parallel universe book, which I, which is a technique that I used in the post-birthday world. Uh, in that instance, to a different purpose, uh, I was trying to look at uh, what a woman's life was like, depending on which man she lived with. And so switching back and forth between these alternative futures uh, was uh, thematically germane to the book. And in this case, also, I'm using, I'm exploring the many, many different uh, scenarios that might play out once they reach this crucial uh, turning point. And the idea is to look at, well, let's say they don't follow through on this. 
um, what are they, what, what would they miss out on or what would they escape? What horrible futures would, would they spare themselves? Um, as well as looking at various well ways that the, the event itself might play out depending on whether they're both on board. Yeah. Or, or go wrong, go, go awry. Yeah. And you know, one Not of the things that plan. makes this, this, um, structure especially beneficial for the book is that it lends the novel a, a lightness and a playfulness you know there are two or three chapters that go into speculative fiction and and it's fun so you know even when you lose one of the characters they're alive in the in the next chapter <laughs> So. Yeah, I have to say it went in places I was not expecting. I, I want to talk about the different genres this this book, it, you know, crosses through. Um, but but before we get to that, just so we we understand a little bit more, the characters are they in their sixties when we first meet them? Um, they, early oh early fifties. Okay, 50s so, so that you know, being eighty still has a certain abstraction to it. Okay. So, and is it like the, it's sort of, it's the early nineties. Is that right? Um, That's right. when they make this decision. Okay. So they've, they've come home from the funeral, the, the wife's father's funeral. And, um, they, they kind of sit down at the kitchen table and one of them, maybe we shouldn't say who proposes this idea that they off themselves, uh, when the, when the wife is 80 and the husband is 81, he's going to, you know, do, do her the service of sticking around another year so they can go together. Um, so, so then you, you know, you, you take us through a number of different versions. How many, how many scenarios are there? Like at least Twelve. five or six. 12. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yes. Uh, okay. I mean, we don't want to give away too much, but just so people can get a, can get a sense, like what are, what, what's one of them? <laughs> the, the, the first, the first thing that we see is kind of goes how. Um, you know, in one of them, for example, the, we get to Kay's, the wife's birthday and she announces quite late in the evening. All right. I've thought about it. I think this is ridiculous. We're both not in bad shape. This is uh, psychologically unrealistic. Uh, it's destructive for our family. Um, to commit suicide that's still going to be painful even if we're we're elderly uh and we're not doing this <laughs> mm -hmm. and they clean up the kitchen <laughs> right and one thing that is static throughout this is the means by which they're going to do this they have a container of pills of, of second all a very a very large dose of second all is that what mm -hmm. it is that's right and uh, Cyril, the husband, he's he's a physician, and Kay is a nurse. I think he's acquired this medication, and it kind of sits on the top of the refrigerator, or something like this, or on a on a high shelf. So it's always there, sort of looming above them. Um, is is that something that you have that you had to research? Did you like have to learn about how how this might be? How how, how would reasonable people uh, be most likely to kill themselves? Is that how you came up well, with this? Um, in, in my case, I, um, took my inspiration from a friend of mine whose father is, or was a doctor and, uh, he had two means of, uh, chemical suicide in the refrigerator from rather early on. What intrigued me about the, that real life story is that my friend's father died of natural causes um, before he grew uh, very elderly and decayed. But his wife has now survived to nearly 90, is horrifically demented, not at all herself, and well beyond the point at which she is able to consent to taking such medication. So oddly, my friend has the means to put her her mother out of what might be misery, um, but it's not. It doesn't do her. It doesn't do her any good. And you know, also thinking about that circumstance that I don't know something about, um, it contributed to one chapter in which they don't go through with it, 
and the wife does indeed become severely demented. But the chapter is told from her perspective. And what you begin to gather is that she may be out of it and not really be able to keep track of what is and is not real, but she's having a wonderful time. She's living in her own little world with her memories and just uh, because she can't can't really grasp what's happening around her, she makes up stories to make sense of it. She's transfixed by sensory input. She loves looking at the sun on the carpet or, you know, it's just everything seems wonderful to her. Although what you can also infer from the scraps of conversation that she overhears is that um, her dementia is definitely hell on earth for everyone else. Right. And incredibly expensive. Yes. So one of the things that I found fascinating about this novel was that you know, there's the there's the domestic story of this couple and this this choice that they're wrestling with in these different ways. But then there's this backdrop of what's happening in the world around them. So the operative word to me was destabilization. So, you know, there's there's a bit about, you know, their own political ideology in the wake of Brexit. Cyril has become this even more of a left wing Facebook ranter type talking about how he's a socialist constantly. Kate tends to play the devil's advocate. But so, you know, there's this kind of friction, but then there's just this larger sense that the question looms as to whether, is the world ending? Are things getting worse? Is this a world that is really worth inhabiting? And I think that that uh, on a human level is a question that as we get older, we ask ourselves for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is a kind of soothing mechanism because like, if I can convince myself that the world is getting worse and worse and worse, it's easier to contemplate my own death. Right? Yes. In fact, the interviews I've done in this book so far, the, the chapter that's been least addressed is in some ways one of the most interesting to me. I think it's the chapter that makes certain readers uncomfortable. But uh, in that scenario, my characters live beyond 100. And so they're very elderly and frail at the same time that things fall apart. And the, basically, it's the worst possible scenario I could come up with within, you know, within the likelihood of the middle of the century. And uh, the West has become completely overrun with mass migration from the global South, especially from Africa and the Middle East. Uh, all the institutions, of course, we're, we're the book set in the UK, so it's all always in British terms. All the institutions that people used to rely on have been destroyed. The um, Parliament has burnt to the ground. Um, the Victoria and Albert Museum and uh, National Portrait Gallery, National Gallery have all been ransacked. Everything is is raised, and you're living in a fundamentally animalistic environment. Your our our main characters have been exiled to the attic of their own house, and yes, they've been taken the, hostage by, taken by hostage. younger people who just regard them as a you know, a, a uh, pest. Essentially. Yes, as a, as a pest, as an obligation to feed cornmeal mush once in a while. But other otherwise, um, all of their property has been taken over. Their savings have been completely decimated. The British pound has been um, reduced to virtually valueless. Uh, and the question that I'm asking, I mean, I just made it, I just piled, it's meant to be almost comical. I'm piling all Yeah, it's cartoonish. Past- let's, let's get it's this straight. Almost, it's it's, it's totally to- over the top. I mean, it's, it's disturbing, but it's also uh, to the point of hilarity in, yes. in moments. So, yes. yes. When things are bad in my books, they're funny. <laughs> um, but I am asking a very serious question, which in fact, the, the characters pose themselves at the end of this chapter. If this was going to happen anyway, if this is our fate, this is what we're looking forward to in about 30 years, 
Do you want to be around to see it? And and I find that question very difficult to answer. There are there are states of social decay that I am loath to witness. Yet there's something in me that is sufficiently curious that maybe I would like to see it. If it's going to happen anyway, I would like to see it. And the, the characters depart on this point. Um, Kay, who had previously expressed uh, dismay at leaving so many um, different narrative threads dangling in in human history, you know, she when she turned 80, she in one chapter she has said, well, you know, we we don't even know whether Donald Trump is going to be reelected because this is March of 2020. Um, we don't know whether Boris Johnson is going to survive COVID-19 because he was at that point mortally ill. Um, and I and she said, well, I feel as if I'm in the middle of all these novels and suddenly I have to return them to the library. So she's been the one who has expressed this historical appetite. Yet when push comes to sub in this horror show dystopia, she admits that looking back, um, indeed, Cyril had been right all along. It had ended up being pretty much downhill since she turned 80. And when she looks around her with their horrible wife in the attic, she'd rather not know about this. She'd rather leave on a positive note and not be, have her memory blighted by all this awfulness and loss. Whereas uh, Cyril says, you know, actually, if it was going to happen anyway, then I'd rather see it. Now, I. I I would like I would rather bear witness to this. But it's also he can say that from the perspective of somebody who's 80 and doesn't have to live with it presumably for another 30 years. Like Actually, it's, at that it's, point he's over 100. So That's yeah. right, he's over 100. Yeah, so to be clear, right, okay, good see it, how that chapter no, ends. I, right. but it does turn out that he doesn't have to live with it for very much longer. Right. But but effectively, but it's one thing to say, "Oh, this is a terrible this is a terrible world. We're living in an absolute, you know, catastrophic dystopia." Um, but I'm but I'm interested in it. It's one thing if you're going to be interested in it for the next 5 years. If you have if you're a young person and you have to contemplate another 40 50 years in it that that's a yeah, different equation exactly and 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 i do think it matters what age you're supposing that you have to put up with horrific conditions is it on a, on the on the level of spectacle a little goes a long way and i yeah. just uh you know i partly for my own entertainment and partly out of uh my own nature. Uh, I'm a catastrophist and I'm leery of all kinds of pending, you know, nightmares like uh, a shortage of fresh water, collapse of the food system, collapse of the international financial system. Uh, I'm worried about antibody, antibiotic resistant bacteria or Mm-hmm. Um, various overpopulation scenarios and and certainly uncontrolled mass migration. It's just you know I've got a long list, and right. I I vary in my appetite to live through some of them if they were to come to pass. Yeah, and I'm curious too. So it seems like this particular scenario, there are a number of different. Uh, catastrophes in play, but mass immigration, climate refugees, other kinds of refugees, that's a giant component. And I wonder if that is part of the reason people are avoiding talking about it. What do you think bothers people so oh, yeah, much about this that, scenario? That, when I said that, that that chapter makes certain people nervous, that's why. I mean, um, it's it's mostly about, about the effects of global immigration, right? Of, of people shifting around. I would say that sort of dominates the, the ethos. Yeah. Uh, the ether, I should say. Uh, well, what I had, I had two main things happen. It was an economic collapse and 
uh, a wave of migration that makes 20, what was the line that makes 2015 seem like a school field trip? <laughs> uh, and, you know, I'm, um, ever since I, I, I wrote Game Control back in uh, 1990, I have been a an amateur demographer. I keep up with uh, what the projections are with various parts of the world. And you know, growth have, population growth has come way down almost everywhere, but not in Africa and the Middle East. And Africa is forecast at this point to have 4.1 billion people by the end of the century. And if you know anything about the geography uh, and the climate on that continent, you know that there is no way Africa is capable of supporting the equivalent of half the population of the world right now. So I don't think it's unreasonable that if, if those projections are correct and to a degree certainly for the first half of the century they are baked in uh those those people are going to be on the move and the place that they are logically going to go is europe so that scenario is not unrealistic what but it is politically dangerous because um on the left and in publishing in general <laughs> um you're never supposed to talk about um migration in any but the most glowing terms. In another one of these uh, imaginings, everybody, nobody dies. Everybody can basically live in a state where they're essentially 25 years old. They're incredibly healthy. They just, um, they have eternal life. But then you, we must wrestle with the question of, is this worth it? Um, And it seems roundly not. Yes. That's one of those chapters that's, starts out cheerful and then gradually gets darker and darker because the eternal life turns out to be flattening and it saps meaning from your life. If you can do anything, then you don't have any limits and there are, there is no there's no stress on your life and we need some stress. We need, and in fact, one of, one of the characters says, summing up the problem, I miss our old urgency. We get a sense of urgency from mortality. Uh, and when, the, when just life just goes on and on, it starts to become tedious and you wear out your pleasures. There's a certain point in which, and this is a poignant, poignant one for me, where Kay announces that she's just had enough red wine. It doesn't interest her anymore. I find that horrifying and sh- <laughs> shocking, I mean, but also does, plausible. Yeah, and it does line up with this. I mean, it's kind of a, a truism at this point, the tyranny of options, right? The paradox of choice. So the more options we're given, the more choices that we have, the more miserable we are in a way. Yes. Uh, so everyone, think- you know, everyone can have as many different professions and careers as they want. You can make whole new sets of friends. Um, there are a lot of people who get married, you know, a hundred times. In fact, my couple is one of the only people that the couple knows who have remained married hundreds of, for hundreds of years. Do you have a preference having thought about this and having written this do you think about how you would like to die uh i think there is some merit in getting some warning ahead of time so that you can put your affairs in order and say what you've got to say um i say some merit though i find the prospect of being diseased especially disturbing that kind of corruption from within uh, uh is is eh. <laughs> um but i you know all told i still think uh i even if i would savor some chance of you know reflecting on things before it's over the fast death with no warning has to be the more desirable. 
like that. My I have an uncle who started not one but two successful businesses. Um, he was in his eighties. He was still working. He was on the floor of his second business. Um, you know, giving people instructions, and then he just dropped dead. I think that's a great way to go. See, I hear you, but that scares me because I don't like the idea of people going through my things. <laughs> really? And actually, I went through a period a couple of years ago. Um, it was the, you know, shortly after my father died. Uh, and my father, uh, for all various reasons, did not have his affairs in order. And uh, it was just became quite complex and a lot of big, lot of big, big entanglement for my brother and me to figure out. But um, I became obsessed with what would happen if I just dropped dead on the street. You know, mm. I live alone. I don't have children. I don't have, you know, really any immediate family, certainly not nearby. Um, and so I was terrified of like being a Jane Doe dropping dead on the street or God forbid, like incapacitated in some kind of vegetative state. And then even if I died, somebody would go through all my stuff. So uh, that, do, do you that have doesn't a worry will? you. Yes. So at that point, have I got, uh, yes, yes. And actually it was right before I went on, this was before my book came out, my last book came out and I was leaving a book tour. I was going to travel a lot and I became completely consumed with getting the will finished before I left for book tour as if, I don't know what the plane would crash. I mean, certainly mm -hmm. the chances of plane crashing are minuscule compared to various other things, <laughs> getting a cancer diagnosis. Uh, but yeah, it was just a strange kind of um, m mental pattern that I found myself in. And I still, I kind of like the idea of uh, getting everything ready um, and then controlling my own death. I have to say, I, the idea of being able to uh, kill myself um, if, at, you know, at the end of life, uh, I find extremely appealing. I guess that's a redundancy to kill myself at the end of life. But just so people are cl clear, I'm not I'm not talking about being suicidal. I'm talking about mm -hmm. if I have a ter terminal illness uh, and there are no options. The idea of having control over my own death is extremely comforting. Yes. And uh, politically, I would advocate the availability of assisted dying services for everyone. What sobered me in the process of writing the book was the realization of how few people would avail themselves of such services. And I like to think of myself as someone who, as Kay would say, has standards <laughs> and would not put up with just anything. And um, I guess I started realizing that I was underestimating the urge to survival, that primitive drive that is deeper and more profound than we usually appreciate. Um, I, I, I think that what has made it possible for me to, uh, to have regard for that force is watching my father get old. And my father is, has a powerful ego. Um, and he's now 93 and a half. And he, there, he never talks about dying. And you would think that he's, he's just never going to die. It's, not, it, it's, it, it's as if he has absolutely no intention of dying. The, there is a, a kind of blanket refusal. And he intends to carry on as long as possible. Um, and... This is despite the fact that his life is supremely compromised to a degree that you would think his younger self would find intolerable. But my father does not find it intolerable. He tolerates it entirely. It's not that he likes it. He doesn't like being weakened. Um, uh, he misses his old energy. I'm sure he doesn't enjoy the fact that he doesn't have very much to do with himself. You know, he's not actively participating in a professional life anymore. But um, I've, I've found it kind of amazing how, how determined he is to stick around. And, that, and because, you know, obviously he's 
close enough to me that this is not just anyone. And it makes it real to me. It makes it real to me how I might not be any different. You know, I think right now that, oh, you know, if I get to the point where I can't play tennis anymore, I don't want to stick around. I think that I'm kidding myself. I think that I'd put up with not playing tennis. I think I'd put up with a great deal of things that's that from this point in time strike me as unacceptable. Right. Well, there's a difference between not being able to play tennis and not being able to clean yourself or being in excruciating pain from terminal cancer. I mean, all of well, these sorts yes, of things. The pain thing is huge. And um, I do think that that's the most common thing that drives people to end their lives. Pain, the pain beyond a certain threshold. And I think that it's, it's probably in an individual setting. Uh, it makes it too expensive effectively to, to, to stay around. It's just too awful. You don't get any pleasure when you're in pain. You, you're almost incapable of experiencing pleasure and, and, you know, it's just, just being here is a torture. And I always find it interesting, you know, it's almost impossible to remember pain so that when you're talking to people who aren't in pain <laughs> about pain, it, it's not real to them. I mean, it's an abstraction. And I think that's one reason that it's possible for moralistic people to say, oh, you know, we we have palliative care and all lives are precious to God and you know, you know, it's a it's a sin to take your own life. All very easy for them to say if they're not in extreme pain. But it's it when on the rare occasion I have experienced extreme pain, it is shocking. It is shocking. And it's more awful than I could ever have remembered. And as soon as it's over, I also can't remember it. This is what people say about childbirth, of course, too, right? They never, uh, you you forget it immediately, which is why yes. you go and, go and have another child. I sometimes it, think there must be something biological going on that that it is not in your, in the interest of your survival to be able to retain. Oh, a kind of amnesia. Of yeah, there might be yeah, some yeah. Evol- evolutionary amnesia. I think uh, that you, amnesia. you are kept from remembering it because if you were able to remember it, you would become so cautious that you would probably starve to death. Yeah, that's that's. there's probably something there. But doesn't it seem to you like this This has to be a major civil rights issue of the next the next couple decades here? We've got yes. aging, aging baby boomers. I cannot believe the way we prolong life needlessly and torturously in in the world, I mean, especially in the West, like as the, the you know, this is an obvious point, and one of the characters makes it in the book. You know, we would not do this to our pets. We would not do to our pets what we end up having to do to our loved ones, which is prolong their suffering. And it's, um, I, you know, I, I wonder, is there what is the climate uh, in the UK where you live most of the time around end of life issues? Is it as fraught as it is in the states? Uh, what's the kind of what's the conversation around this? I think the conversation in the UK is starting to turn, um, as the law is currently constructed. Assisted dying is flagrantly illegal. Okay. And a doctor who helps you die can get 14 years in prison. But in practice, uh, there, there's not, th- this is very under-prosecuted. And there are plenty of cases in which doctors quietly um, withdraw life support or Give a lot of morphine, yes, right, yeah, um, yeah. to hasten the end because because the patient is clearly suffering. Uh, this kind of goes on in the margins, and everyone knows it's happening. And of course, then if you are wealthy enough and have enough foresight to do it before you can't travel, uh, a small handful of people in Britain every year go to Dignitas in. Switzerland. In Switzerland, yeah. Um, uh, the London Times has just 
this year recently started on a campaign to uh, legalize assisted dying in the UK. Uh, this is a, I would call it a morally conservative country. I think that if the law is changed, it will it will lag other countries in the same way that any kind of reform of its drug laws are going to be much slower than um, other European countries. Um, but I think it, I think eventually the law here will be overturned, and in the meantime, it gets ignored. And one one of the there's a interesting book out this year called The Inevitable, which is about the U.S. situation. Um, and it's not just about his assisted dying. It's also about people not giving a toss what the law is and um, figuring out how to take control of their own end of life, uh, whatever. You know, there are books out there. There are organizations that w- will um, sit by you and watch you kill yourself. <laughs> um, yeah, there are death doulas. There's such a thing as yes. a death doula. And and there are there are there are ways there are ways of you know asphyxiating yourself. Um, there uh, that you can research. Um, and there are veteran veterinary drugs that are available mostly in Mexico, that can be imported um, illegally, of course. Uh, And it's complicated, but there are a lot of people who are quite determined to do it. In fact, I get the impression that for certain elderly people, this whole thing of getting control over death becomes their last mission in life. Mm -hmm. Is that a bad thing? No. It isn't a bad thing. It's good to have a sense of purpose regardless of what it is. The National Health Service is almost like a character unto itself in this novel. So both Cyril and Kay have been lifelong employees or career-long employees. Uh, Many people in Britain, they revere it. That seems to be my impression as an American. But there's also a certain wariness. As you know, Americans on the left... We'll hold it up as an example of how simple it would be to have single-payer health care if only there was a will. So as an American who essentially functions as a British citizen, or at least a resident, what are your thoughts about the the NHS? Not, not only in terms of end-of-life care, although I am interested in that, but just as a medical system, as a health provider. Right. Well, I, I, I'm afraid that my attitude has slowly changed. Um, when I first came here 30 years ago, I was a big supporter of the concept of single-payer health care. Uh, it it's been incredibly pre- refreshing to you know, have an injury and go into accident and emergency, and you don't have to fill out all these forms to explain how you're going to pay for this. It's, it is of course, an illusion that it's free, but that is the experience of going to a hospital is that they're just going to treat you and it's not about money. And that's that relieves a, an aspect of any kind of health crisis uh, th- that hits you in the States that is welcome, you know, and, it, and we all know what that's, what that's like, you know, if you have an accident Oh my God! What is this going to cost me? Does my insurance cover it? Am I at the right hospital? Is it in my network? Is this anesthetist in my network? I mean, it's uh, it's horrific. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so that's not here, and I it, experientially that is great. Um, and and I more I I pretty much like the idea in theory. I like the idea very much in theory. In practice, um. The NHS is horribly bureaucratic and overly centralized. It also gives um, inconsistent care depending on where you are, which isn't fair. Um, and there's there's a lot of you know a, a, a huge proportion of the NHS budget is for paying off medical suits and 
that's not because the doctors here are somehow unusually incompetent, but that's one of the costs of doing business in in medical systems in the U.S. as well. You know. Uh, oh, but insurance companies and the, and the COVID, you know, COVID has been lawsuits. COVID right. has been horrific for the NHS, and there is now a five million person waiting list for care. I'm afraid the NHS became the national COVID service and basically wasn't doing any health care other than taking care of COVID patients. Half the um, hospital beds throughout the uh, the first wave of the pandemic were empty. Um, so I've, I've, I've been very discouraged by the, the, the NHS, uh, during the pandemic. And, you know, it weirdly, one of the mottos that was forced down the public's throat by the government was, um, you know, save lives, protect the NHS. And it was eventually became a truism to point out, excuse me, but the NHS is supposed to be protecting us. So we did protect the NHS. There are plenty of GPs who are still not seeing patients in person. Uh, whereas, you know, there are other GPs who, who who continued to see people through the pandemic and have done a wonderful job. So it's not the problems haven't haven't been in relation to all of the staff, but certainly a large proportion of the staff has used used it as a an, another opportunity to stay home. That's been the the case in any number of fields, and I'm afraid medicine is no exception. So this system, I'm afraid right now, is breaking down. It's no longer serving cancer patients well. Are there going to be all kinds of people who die as a consequence of these lockdowns because they haven't been doing cancer checks? They have they shut down all kinds of cancer treatments. Um, is that it, because they, they're... They lacked the financial resources to take on COVID plus the usual load. I mean, what, no, what was the equation there? So, yeah, what no. was the logic? Fear, fear. You know, fear of being overwhelmed. Okay. That's one of the great overused words in this pandemic has been overwhelmed. It always has to do with the NHS. We have to keep the NHS from being overwhelmed. So okay. it was never overwhelmed. There were a couple of hospitals that had some pressure put on them. For the most part, everyone was so petrified that the NHS would be overwhelmed that, you know, this is the precautionary principle. They over, overly prepared. They built these huge Nightingale's hospitals that were never even used. Um, that happened here, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same thing. Happened in New York. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it was, it, it, you know, the problem was hysteria. So what if it if not for covid though what would your reservations be about the NHS I just I think Americans really romanticize it it's mm-hmm. it constantly comes up American liberals like, romanticize yes yes, yes. whereas um, romantic American uh, conservatives use it as an example of why single payer doesn't work right so the truth is somewhere in the middle obviously yes. how would you articulate that middle place how would you explain it I think the systems that work better entail some contribution from the patient on top of taxes. I don't know why that is, but I mean, for example, there's a small core of Britons that wildly overuses the NHS. Um, in fact, one of the things that the that COVID cured, however, temporarily, was this group of people who are either hypochondriacs or they're lonely. And worried well. The U.S. has the same little group of people. It's a particular pathology. And they are the bane of medical systems. So if you don't charge them anything, you give them the go-ahead to strain the patients of of the medical establishment. Um, it's very hard to exclude them, but the best way to discourage them is to charge them something. So this obsession here with what they call free at the point of use is actually destructive. You know, I, it's, it's the principle that I think the United States has ultimately to endorse, even if we study other health systems and figure out what is the ideal set of 
of organizing uh, principles that, that let's figure out what what works where and and import the most intelligent aspects of this system. But we have to get beyond this notion that we're completely dependent on private insurance. So I, right. I just don't think that works. I think it, I mean, I've written a book about this. I know, I know. Um, so um, much, so much for so that. Much for that. Uh, because, you know, the insurance takes, a, it is an extra layer of very expensive complexity. And it's full, it just introduces any number of injustices. Um, and it's inefficient. It's why our system is wildly inefficient. The U.S. spends twice as much money per head on medical care as anywhere else in the world. And yet uh, our outcomes are worse. So something's wrong. It's not going to be easy to fix, however, because it involves, last I checked, closing on 20% of the economy. And and a lot of people's livelihoods are dependent on on this way of doing things. Is there any country that gets it right that you know I think, of? I actually think France has a pretty good medical system. And that's a combination of, of public and private insurance. But is it easier for them? They're a smaller country, obviously. Any yeah. comparison between a country like France and a country like the U.S. is foolish on several levels. But yeah. Well, also, you know, they don't have the same thing of the country being carved up into states with state governments. I mean, it's right. Right. That's an added complexity in relation to everything in the United States. Exactly. It's also part of the fun of the United States. Yes. That's, that's the tyranny of options, right? It's so Mm -hmm. to to be able to choose from all these States, there's nothing, nothing good that can come of that. I think that's Uh, great. I think that Americans tend to underappreciate how exhilarating that is to have that much choice. I mean, every once in a while, I realize, you know, I don't have to live in New York because <laughs> you know, we have a, a but house. Do you actually ever act on that? No, no. But that's not impossible. Uh, and I look at the map, and it's like, wow, wow, all these different places, and then it's it's kind of thrilling. It, it, it's surprising that Americans are not more mo- mobile than they are. Yeah. Well. There, I think people tend to be either extremely mobile or not at all. There's kind of no no middle ground there, and a lot of that is socioeconomic. Anyway, that that's a different conversation. You you are a novelist who is really guided in a lot of ways by social issues. Obviously, you tell compelling stories, but you are taking on big subjects. You took on school shootings. You take on healthcare, morbid obesity. Uh, in this case, end of life. Um, you also are a columnist, a, an opinion haver. You write for the Spectator. You're known as a as a pundit in the UK, especially. Um, how is it different writing in that mode rather than having characters to be able to to do the talking for you? Is it is there something uh, of a relief to be able to retreat into the to the novel to kind of further your ideas? Oh, the fiction writing is much more fun. And, you know, in, in fiction, you can assume different positions through different characters. And the characters themselves can change their minds. None of this is possible in a column. Um, there's a kind of nakedness to the column, which it, it, it feels crude. <laughs> um, and I also, I don't think... Most journalism survives the moment, and for good reason. It, it at its best, it speaks to the moment. But as as soon as everything changes, uh, m- most most of my own columns and essays are not going to be very interesting. Whereas uh, a book that's put together properly. Uh, even if it's set in a particular time, doesn't necessarily become irrelevant. And, you know, that's only one test of a book as to whether it's going to last, but I think it means something. Um, so why do you continue to write columns? And I ask this as somebody who has been writing columns for a very long time and is mm-hmm. now pretty much completely burned out. I just can't. 
I can't muster, muster the 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 will to to say something. I think you get to a point, especially if you have to write something every week on a schedule, you get to the mm-hmm. point where you're just saying something for the sake of saying it. Um, and I think you see that a lot. And we end up with a lot of kind of notions uh, floating around in the air that people are, readers are taking a lot more seriously than perhaps the, the authors themselves uh, did. Yeah, so. I actually, I know exactly what you are talking about. I have come to be able to recognize um, columns that are written by a columnist that was hard up for a topic and just needed to fill the space and, and make their weekly or fortnightly, you know, fee and, you know, yeah. they, that, and, and, and I'm not going to read it. If well, I recognize and, and they will I'm be grateful. I can yes. say, I mean, you know, I, it's, uh, occasionally you write that column and you just say, oh, please, I, I, I hope nobody reads this. I mean, that's a terrible yeah. place to be in as a, as a writer, as, as anybody well, who's I, doing I any kind of expression. A, there's a way in the column and that early on you say the things that you most need to say at, at this historical juncture and you run out of them inevitably you start repeating yourself or merely refining a point which is not as gratifying as staking claim to a position in the first place and uh i hate repeating myself so that's what will drive me away from regular journalism is just a feeling like i've said but I've got to say on all the topics I really care about and I find I'm, I'm just really writing the same set of columns over and over again. Yeah. I think that's a lot of what being a columnist is. There's a delightful moment in the novel where you, you, you make fun of yourself. There's a little cameo appearance of some, some Yankee author named Shriver who's always going on about um, various, various topics. Um, Just a little, a little, like paragraph. I thought that was yes, your author very, makes a very, fun. very fun. Very yeah. fun. Um, My editor tried to get rid of that. Oh no, I love that. Uh, you have been for the last several years uh, weighing in on these culture war topics. And I don't want to go too far in this conversation talking about that because I talk about it probably too much on this show, but are you getting tired of that subject? It's certainly something that you've said a lot about. You you have been, people have lauded you. They've challenged you. It's something that you get asked to speak about, especially issues around cultural appropriation and mm-hmm. fiction, for instance. Um, how are you? How are you feeling in terms of your stamina and enthusiasm around those subjects? Um, you are correct to intuit that I am sick of it. Uh, I, as most people do, uh, who share my exasperation with identity politics, etc. Uh, I feel that uh, the more liberal, tolerant position is self-evidently preferable. Um, I, I think that what's wrong with identity politics is obvious. And therefore, this is another thing where, you know, I... I end up saying the same thing over and over again. I get tired of it, and I get tired of the fact that it doesn't seem to make any difference. Now, that said, I feel as if there is a growing cadre of, call them public intellectuals, who have come to the fore and have pushed back against cancel culture, cultural appropriation, identity politics, the hyper-racialization of the world. And and I feel as if I have more company politically than I used to. I feel as if there are more people speaking out than there were, say, a couple of years ago. That said, of course, the post-Floydian universe has experienced a huge setback. I mean, that that incident was an opportunity for identitarians to make enormous institutional gains as as well as major political gains. So now that we have the president of the United States who was elected as a centrist, 
talking about institutionalized racism in the United States. I find that incredibly depressing. Um, well, he doesn't so, know what that means. I mean, no, it's, I get, it's I get so he doesn't know what that means, and and how sweeping a condemnation he's making of the country he, of which he's president. I mean, that's which I I find appalling. Um, so the last year, I, I, I feel that that we've definitely made a big step backwards, but uh, nevertheless, people like you and me and. Um, Douglas Murray and Peter Hitchens and um, Thomas Chatterton Williams. Yeah, I'm sure you could recite the yes. whole list. Many people who've been on been on this show. Yeah, the people who signed the Harper's letter, and you have been a columnist at Harper's. Yeah, but again, I sometimes feel that we are just repeating ourselves. I mean, well, we are. We are. I, I appreciate this. Gang, I appreciate this crew, mm-hmm. but I'm sure that there's not one of us that's not a little bit sick of ourselves. And that's yeah. <laughs> to and our it, credit. You know, part of the frustration of saying these things over and over again that seems so self-evident is that they don't seem to make any difference. There is this wave of critical race theory uh, being embraced by corporations and universities and um, in, uh, institutions across the board. We're now seem to be just accepting that we need racial quotas or for everything and either explicit or implicit. I mean, it's not some kind of accident that 16 of the 24 actors listed for the Academy Awards this year were of color, right? It was like, that was a rule. That, and one of the things that's happened now is not only do we have racial quotas, but they're excessive, you know? That they're beyond the proportion of the right, population. Well, There's just over- this understanding, well, you know, you can't make too much of an effort. And I, I, what, I, I oppose racial quotas. It won't surprise you to hear. And I have done since I was 16 years old when um, affirmative action start, was first birthed in the United States. And I have never changed my mind. Uh, but... I feel as if we're in the midst of something that is beyond influence, right? Once, once in, it, it, it's got to the institutional level, it just has to burn itself out. I mean, all these useless and even actively destructive anti-bias training programs. Yeah, the diversocrats. Yeah, the a, diversocrats. Yeah. I mean, that's just is now and has to go through a process of being found to be stupid. But um, it takes a while. I, 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 I don't know how else to get rid of it than to let it burn itself out. How long do you think we're looking at for that to happen? I have no idea. Longer than I want. I want it gone tomorrow. So that's not going to happen. Um. No, a lot of this is useless kowtowing and and has nothing to do with improving the lot of minorities in Oh, in it's a smokescreen for maintaining the status quo in a lot of cases. Yeah. It's yeah, a distraction. A lot, a lot of the time that's the case. Yes. Do you ever think about this climate that we're in, this intellectual climate, and wonder if maybe this is a good last chapter. Again, I'm not talking about dying tomorrow, but sometimes I think, wow, how lucky I am to have come of age 30 years ago and not today. And if things continue this way, and I'm in no way comparing uh, you know, the, the media climate to some kind of global catastrophe and world famine and all of this, but there is something dispiriting about these times that we're in that feel like a particular kind of sadness and um and the feeling of being irrelevant there's something particular about it so do you ever think like okay like if things continue this way i'm not going to be i'm not it's it's okay to get it's okay to get old it's okay to kind of back away slowly i have this sense all the time is i'm just going to i'm just going to back up slowly and that's okay. Yeah, I have to confess that the weariness that seeps into your bones when you keep saying the same thing, it seems true, and yet it doesn't make any difference. 
um, I start eyeing the door. You know, yeah. I I find the current cultural climate, especially in you know liberal circles, so exhausting and so overtly stupid. So that I'm lured into having conversations that are are degrading just because I'm having them. Even if I'm winning the argument, I shouldn't be having this conversation. This is a waste of my life. And and I, that's how I definitely feel about the cultural appropriation issue. I can't tell you how long I have spent talking about that nonsense. And I shouldn't be having that conversation. Well, and with people who idea. should know better. And with people who are educated and and intelligent and who 10 years ago, I'm pretty sure we would have been on the same page. It's like, that's that's what frustrates me. Like what happened? Was one of us like cognitively kidnapped? Maybe it was me. I I don't know. Well, I just, you know, I, I do start thinking, okay, you know, maybe, maybe I should quit. Maybe I should withdraw. I know I, it's a little bit, if we're going to make this conversation more circular, it's a little bit like that business of wanting to have the medication in the fridge. Right. Yeah. And it's you don't have to take it, but you it's very comforting to know it's there. So, you know, I've got another column due tonight and I will file it. So I'm not threatening to, you know, to quit today, (laughs) but I am not making any promises for the future. I like to know that what that I have the option of simply withdrawing from the world. And because because if it. If it, if it gets any stupider, I just don't want to have anything to do with it. Do you worry that there are subjects that you're not going to be able to take on in fiction because of this climate? Do you think a book like We Need to Talk About Kevin would have been publishable today? I don't know. I find that hard to answer, but I will tell you this. I think that the time that I might have acted on this impulse has passed, so this is not giving anything away that I'm actually going to do. But there was a point probably around 2013 and I had, I've, I've often been asked whether I would ever write a sequel to Kevin. And I've always said no, because as, as I've gone on record, I don't like repeating myself, but I had this notion that I could do a different formulation of Kevin only the kid was had the kid decided he was transgender and there was a difference of opinion between the parents and the father just as in the the book in relation to Kevin the father thinks the kid is truly transgender and you know gets involved in the politics of it and with the school and all all this affirmative stuff whereas the mother sees right through him and realizing they're being manipulated and that this is just something he's taken on to torture his parents. <laughs> I never wrote that book. Um, it w- would have been too dangerous at the time, and I didn't want to bring all that onto my head, so I didn't write it. Do so, you want to write it? Um, I was willing to go into that because I decided I don't want to write it. I think the time for that book has come and gone. Any any appetite I might have for that book has disappeared. So no, I'm not going to write that book. But it was interesting that I shied from the idea. Well, Lionel, thank you for for being on the show and taking all this time to uh, to talk. It's always really fun and fascinating to to speak with you. And good luck with the book. Thank you. It's as ever a pleasure to talk to you. That was my interview with novelist Lionel Shriver. Her fiction includes The Mandibles, Property, So Much for That, the New York Times bestseller, The Post-Birthday World, and the international bestseller, We Need to Talk About Kevin. Her journalism has appeared in The Guardian, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, Harper's, and The London Times, and she currently writes a regular column for The Spectator in the UK. She lives in London and in Brooklyn, New York. You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast. To support the show, please visit the Patreon page at patreon.com slash theunspeakable. 
If you join at the $10 a month level or higher, you'll get $10 off your first purchase of official Unspeakable Podcast Nuanced AF merchandise. There are hats, shirts, mugs, thermoses, stickers, magnets. You can find all of it in the Nuance store on the show's website, theunspeakablepodcast.com. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about how you could pay as little as two cents a gallon for gas. Look, when gas prices are this low, we can't complain about gas prices being too high. No, sir. I wouldn't join BJ's Wholesale Club. Hey, thanks, Frank. But if you do want to sign up now to get a $40 BJ's digital gift card, join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in Ross Township. Visit BJ's.com slash Ross Township or the BJ's Membership Center at the Block Northway. Offer valid for a limited time. Are you in excruciating pain brought on by your son, daughter, or spouse suffering from addiction? The sleepless nights, the constant worry, and the feelings of isolation. Recovery Centers of America wants you to know you're not alone. Addiction destroys families. But if you call Recovery Centers of America today at 1-888-RECOVERY, your loved one can begin to recover, and so can your whole family. At Recovery Centers of America at Monroeville, your loved one will be treated with compassion and dignity by expert addiction professionals while recovering in a world-class facility. Family Support Services will give you knowledge, connection, and community so that you can begin to heal and recover as well. Call 1-888-RECOVERY today. Recovery Centers of America accepts insurance, provides transportation, and offers intervention services at no cost. Patients are admitted 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now.